Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, Kellen, did you hear that all of our drought problems are fixed because it rained a lot? <laughs> I don't really know how to respond to that because I've witnessed that attitude of like, hey, it rained a lot. So now we're good. It was really cold this winter. So climate change isn't real. Yeah, I'm glad that all the rain at least had a dent on this drought that's been lasting for multiple years. Yeah, I saw someone comment in saying that the, the storm in California raised like Oroville by four feet, which it needs a lot more than that. But I mean, that's better than nothing. And I, I mean, honestly, the rain does help, but too much rain at once can hurt more than it helps as well. And as we head into climate change, worsening climate change, that's going to be more and more the case is long periods of drought followed by too much rain. Some areas won't get any rain at all. Some will get way too much. So it'd be nice if it was just a little more evened out the right amount of rain at the right time. But I guess we'll take We'll take some rain better than none at all. Yeah, that's true. But it's definitely humbling when you realize how ill-prepared we are for extreme weather events. And we've gotten a lot better over time at building structures and infrastructure that can handle extreme weather. But even then, just one natural disaster. And we are so powerless to defend ourselves against it. And it's amazing when you think about how many different types of natural disasters there are and how frequently they seem to be happening, and with the increased intensity with which they're happening, I think our infrastructure is really no match for it. And there's no way that we could pay the amount of money we would need to to get all of our infrastructure to a place where it was able to defend against most of nature's wrath. And obviously, we, we post these episodes 
or publish them a week to two weeks after we record them. So Kellen and I are referencing the three-day atmospheric river storm in California, as well as the nor'easter that's about to hit the East Coast. And it's really relevant to the episode that we've got this week. And it's kind of funny that it happened this way, because me and Kellen have been talking about doing this episode for the last couple of months. We figured we'd wait until it got closer to winter. But once it started raining in California, I said, Kellen, we got to get this episode out there. (laughs) And the episode is on Arc Storm, which I think some people are pretty familiar with, but some people have never heard of it before. And this is going to be kind of a fun one to talk about. It's another one of those kind of like Kessler syndrome, where it's not this huge systemic issue that's currently happening and is going to worsen. It's more of a, a plausible and even likely scenario that will have a major impact on California specifically but the U.S. as well, and even could have some major impacts globally. And even though Arc Storm itself isn't this systemic issue that's increasing, atmospheric river extreme storms are increasing, and there's evidence of where that's going to lead us. So we'll talk some about that as well. That's right. This is not really an if scenario. This is a when, and it's going to have severe consequences especially, in my opinion, as we're going to be in a world racked with more and more systemic issues, the types of crises that come from natural disasters can be a huge hit to a society struggling with catabolic collapse. You think about things like the pandemic and the toll that it's had. I think that what we're about to talk about, the arc storm, could be similar as far as the global impacts that it has, or even worse, especially if we're further along that catabolic collapse road? Is it the straw that breaks the camel's back, basically? By the way, when you first told me about Arkstorm, I'd never heard of it before. And to me, it sounded like some like 10-year-old boys soccer team, or maybe some like comic book superhero that no one's ever heard of. Arkstorm just seems like a really strange term. So I'm excited for you to share a little bit more about what that means. Yeah, I felt the same way when I first heard it too. It's so dramatic sounding that it's almost silly, right? But it actually has a a meaning behind the name. So it's capital A, capital R, lowercase k, capital S, storm. And it stands for atmospheric river, and then the K is for 1000. So atmospheric river 1000 storm. And that name comes from the USGS, so the United States Geological Survey. And so Kellen's going to explain here in a little bit what atmospheric rivers are and how they come to be, and why they're getting worse. But the 1,000 stands for what was once considered a once-in-1,000-year amount of rain. So putting that all together, we're talking about a storm with a ton of rain caused by atmospheric rivers. So to kind of set the stage for what this storm is, we can look back on the last time that it happened, which was in 1861 to 1862. It was in December to January of that year in California. And I've got just a small paragraph about that storm from an article. It says, That singular storm, called the Great Flood, unleashed 10 feet of rain and snow over California in 43 days. At the end of 1861 and the start of 1862, the precipitation formed an inland sea that stretched 300 miles down the Central Valley and as much as 60 miles wide. At least 21 people died, the state declared bankruptcy, and it drowned so many cattle that California changed from a predominantly ranching economy to the agricultural salad bowl we know today. It was also said that for a time, Sacramento was no longer the state capital because it was underwater. The majority of Sacramento was 10 feet underwater, they said, so they had to temporarily move the capital 
to San Francisco. And this was back in, again, 1862, when the population of California was something like 380,000 people, whereas today it's 40 million people. So we're talking about a population, you know, a hundred times larger. To think of it raining like a month straight, 45 days straight, is just out of this world. And to think 10 feet of rain, like if we get a couple of inches of rain that come down in within a few hours, that's like a lot of rain for us, right? And so 10 feet is, is unimaginable. And to make this storm even more wild is the fact that that's not the first time it's happened, and it's not the worst that it's happened. So from different studies that have been done, they found that actually since the year 200 AD, there's been 10 of these storms that they were able to verify. And so those 10 storms happened in a 1,600-year period, putting the average for one of those storms at about every 160 years, which is kind of funny because if you take 1862 and add 160, that's 2022. So we're right about to where the average of where it would be expected for another one of these to happen. So not to interrupt, but if it's been happening on average every 160 years, then how does that work when you said the whole name arc storm implies it's a once in a thousand year event? Yeah, good question. So from what I could find, they believed at one time that it was a once in a thousand year amount of water. And that was before they had done the research in like sediment levels and things like that to decipher that it had actually happened once every about 160 years on average. And then from there, they just didn't change the name. And it's also important to note that each of these storms are not the same. So it turns out that that storm in 1862 actually wasn't the worst storm and wasn't even close. There were six storms out of those 10 previous storms that were much, much worse. Some possibly as much as twice as bad. So when you consider that six of those storms were what they called mega storms that were even worse, those happened on average every 233 years. And it's been over 400 years since the last one of those mega storms. So what arc storm is then is a model of what a storm the similar size of the one that happened in 1862 would do to the California infrastructure and economy today. But before we dive into what that could look like, what they've kind of scenarioed out as far as what they believe will happen and how bad they think it will be, I think it would be important to have Kellen speak to a little bit about what atmospheric rivers are. Yeah, and I'll just say that you've spoken about California, but just a couple of years ago in 2019, there were record floods in Iran that were caused by an atmospheric river. They happen in Canada, Australia, and apparently atmospheric rivers are responsible for eight of the 10 highest daily precipitation records from 1979 to 2011 in Europe. With that, you might think, okay, what is an atmospheric river? Sometimes they're called tropical plumes, water vapor surge, cloud band. There's a few different names for them, but it's not a river in the way that we think of a river on land. It's water vapor, and they tend to move through the atmosphere in these long streams that are several hundred miles long, but somewhere between 250 and 375 miles wide. But here's what's crazy. One atmospheric river can move on average 10.5 trillion gallons of water per day. And the strongest ones move between 7 and 25 times as much water as the flow of the Mississippi River. So it's almost unfathomable the amount of water that's just flowing in these atmospheric rivers. 
What happens with these is there's hotter temperatures at the equator, hotter air causes more water vapor, and hotter air can carry more water. And with the air pressure and the combination of a handful of factors, it all starts moving in a single direction. What's interesting is these atmospheric rivers ride really low in the atmosphere, usually at about 10,000 feet, which to put that in perspective, most airplanes fly on average 30,000 feet or higher. And when these atmospheric rivers hit land, and especially land where there's mountains, that air and that water vapor moves up, and then it cools, and then all that water drops. So there's some debate out there as to what all the factors are that result in the formation of an atmospheric river. But I'll just read a statement from a Harvard article that kind of explains it. I'm not going to try and explain it beyond this because some of this is over my head. But it says, Results show that atmospheric rivers are formed by the cold front which sweeps up water vapor in the warm sector as it catches up with the warm front. This causes a narrow band of high water vapor content to form ahead of the cold front at the base of the warm conveyor belt airflow. Yeah, and if you Google atmospheric rivers and look at like the images, it's pretty cool. Because like you just described, it's just this narrow band that comes off of the tropics and it just goes and goes, right? And sometimes they're longer, sometimes they're shorter, sometimes they're not really there. But under these correct conditions, which are rare, but that happen and seem to be happening consistently throughout history, it can extend that river far enough to where it makes major impacts on land. And in this case, we're talking about the major impacts it can have on California specifically. And a lot of that has to do with the unique sort of geological outlay of the land, the way that California lies. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But first, I think it's interesting because the storm that we just talked about in California that just happened this last week, three straight days of rain, it was basically a very, very mini version of what an arc storm would look like because it did come from an atmospheric river, just one that didn't last for the same duration that an arc storm would. And it is so interesting, like you said, that we were just talking about and planning this episode, and then we only a few days ago had this storm. And it was record amounts of rain that hit central and northern California, at least for as long as we've been keeping records. And I mean, the good news is, like we said, it put a dent in the effects of this extended drought. And it also doused wildfires, kind of ended the wildfire season. But the bad news is it triggered major flooding and mudslides. You know, it was a serious extreme weather event. So for those who aren't aware, San Francisco and Sacramento hit new October rainfall records. And that is after this massive shortage of precipitation. So you're saying that even though it's been short amounts of rainfall up to now during this year, just this one storm was enough to bring us back and then some to record amounts of rainfall. Yeah, one source said that Sacramento went from a 212-day-long streak, a dry streak, to having the wettest day on record, which was 5.44 inches of rain that fell in 24 hours. So... Again, to put that in perspective, normally it takes two and a half months for that much rain to fall, and it all came down in 24 hours. And going from one extreme to another like that, that extreme drought to that much rainfall, there's a term for that. It's called precipitation whiplash, and we're starting to see it more and more. 
Another statement here, San Francisco International Airport also recorded 4.02 inches of rain on Sunday, bringing its monthly total to 5.5 inches, or roughly 10 times the average for the month. And then it says no measurable rain fell there between April and September. So again, we're talking about months of severe drought and then all of a sudden just an absolute downpour. You think about the town of Paradise that got devastated by fire a few years ago. They had 7.57 inches of rain on Sunday. In many low elevation areas, there was half a foot of rain. There was more than a foot of rain in the mountains. And at some of the highest elevations, there were multiple feet of snow. So this atmospheric river, it was a level 5 out of 5, at least declared by the Center of Western Weather and Water Extremes in California. And the storm that brought the atmospheric river to the west coast was the most intense on record offshore the Pacific Northwest. So there were hurricane force winds in the open ocean, and then as it hit the coast, there were 50 to 80 mile per hour gusts along the whole coast from Seattle to San Francisco. There was the lowest air pressure on record in that part of the ocean, which caused kind of this vacuum effect. And to finalize, I'll read one more statement from one of these articles, and we can link these in the episode description. But it says, The atmospheric river itself was transporting about a ton and a half of moisture per second over every horizontal meter across the core of the moisture stream. So basically, right in the middle of this atmospheric river, we're talking a ton and a half of moisture every single second moving past every horizontal meter in that area. Long story short, a lot of records were broken. It was an extreme storm. Those numbers that you read off are so interesting because it shows that it's so rare for California to get that much rain, especially at once. And you talk about 200 days without rain and then all of a sudden dumping all that moisture. And it shows that there's a reason for why California has not invested a lot of money into building an infrastructure resilient to floodwaters. One article I read mentioned how after that 1862 flood, it was pretty much forgotten in most people's minds. And as building continued in California again to, you know, over a hundred times the population it had in 1862, it was done for the most part without the thought of another one of those major storms happening. And mainly because they didn't know that there was a pattern of them. They may have thought it was a once in a thousand year thing. And so it wasn't something that they, they thought was needed to be prepared for until just recently, the last couple of decades, more and more research has been done on this, and they found that the likelihood of one of these storms is actually quite high. And I know we're talking about atmospheric rivers, an arc storm here, but when I was just watching videos of all of the insane flooding that took place in California, it felt like I was watching videos from New York, New Jersey, when they had some really extreme flooding after a hurricane just a couple of months ago. And that felt like I was watching the extreme flooding that took place a handful of months ago in Belgium and the absolutely mind-boggling flooding that took place in parts of China. And over just the course of a few months watching globally all of these flood events taking place from extreme weather. I know I'm experiencing some recency bias here, but it just feels like the globe is under attack from the elements. Yeah, and in this specific case, it's water, but we've seen the same thing. You could say the same thing you just said, but also about fires. The Australia fires, the fires in Greece, the fires in California and the West, and in so many other parts of the world. There is no denying how much it's all increasing because of climate change. And this is something that we'll talk about later in the episode 
and how the likelihood of an arc storm happening is also increasing due to climate change. But even as is, the chances right now are pretty high. So they say that there's greater than a 50% chance of an arc storm occurring in California in the next 40 years. And those chances are going up rapidly due to climate change. The storm that you just talked about that just hit California, as devastating as it was and as much flooding and mudslides and things that it caused, it still doesn't hold a candle to the type of devastation that an arc storm would cause. So arc storm would not only be much longer in duration than this recent storm, but would also be much more intense. According to one article that's talking about the research that was done and the models that were carried out, said that wind speeds in some places would reach 125 miles per hour. So we're talking about hurricane force winds and across wider areas of the state, winds would be at a steady 60 miles per hour. Hundreds or thousands of landslides would damage roads, highways, and homes. This is where things get kind of crazy. Total estimated damages approach $1 trillion. Most of the numbers, if you if you look this up in different articles, will say $725 billion because that was what the model calculated, but that was almost 20 years ago. So in today's dollars, um, we're talking about nearly a trillion dollars in damages. Which makes me think about how just a couple of weeks ago, when we discussed the cost of the US military, it was up a little bit above 700 billion. And that was the majority, the largest portion of our nation's discretionary budget. So to think that one storm could cost way more than that and be a trillion dollars makes me wonder how we would survive that as a nation. Like, how does the economy deal with that beyond just what a struggle that is for California as a state, but for the nation to absorb that and for all the effects I'm sure you'll talk about with what that would do to agriculture and crops and everything else that's there in California. I almost just can't even comprehend that. Yeah, typically we talk about the number of natural disasters in a year that cost over $1 billion. That's like the benchmark for a very large disaster. In 2020, there were 22 natural disasters that cost at least a billion dollars. And the total cost that year was $95 billion. So to take one year and say we're around $100 billion in total disasters from all the different things that happen throughout the year, and then to say this one storm is going to cost 10 times the amount that they all do combined right now is just out of this world, especially when you consider that when this happens, if it were to happen a decade or two from now, we're going to be seeing more and more natural disasters. So the overall cost is just so much higher. Now you add to that, that at least 25% of all buildings in the state would suffer some kind of flooding. So you think of how massive California is and one in four buildings would have flooding and it's believed that only 12% of California property is insured. So millions of building owners would have limited or no ability to make repairs, and many of them would not have the financial ability to just pick up and move on. One source said that that degree of damage would threaten California with a long-term reduction in economic activity and raise insurance rates statewide, perhaps nationwide, or more afterwards. I can't think of many insurance or even reinsurance companies that could cover a trillion dollars of damages all at once. 
Reading from one of the articles here, it says agricultural losses and other costs to repair lifelines, dewatered drain, flooded islands, and repair damage from landslides brings the total direct property loss to nearly $400 billion, of which only 20 to $30 billion would be recoverable through public and commercial insurance. So there's just so much lost property there that, that can't be regained. Power, water, sewer, and other lifelines experience damage that takes weeks or months to restore. It talks about how up to 50 levees could be breached. And one really specific and dramatic example of that would be that it could cause the Whittier Narrows Dam on the San Gabriel River in Los Angeles metro area to, to be breached, which could flood up to 1 million people in the metropolitan Los Angeles area. Um, in an article published in the Los Angeles Times, it was said that the Whittier Narrows Dam is one of the many pieces of water infrastructure that may not be up to the challenge of the brave new climate of the 21st century. The highest water levels of 20 feet could affect the people of Pico Rivera, a city of 63,000 that lies just downstream. And according to the Whittier Daily News, the 62-year-old earthen dam was rated as the highest priority dam to fix. Of the 13 dams nationwide rated as high risk by the Army Corps of Engineers, due to the potential for very significant loss of life and economic impacts. However, the dam is the only one of the 13 high-risk dams that has not yet finalized an upgrade plan, putting it far behind schedule. Another source talked about how the biggest challenge here is the sheer number of people in the path of destruction. The 1860 census recorded just 379,994 people in California. Today, there's nearly 40 million. The USGS team estimates that at least 1.5 million people would need to evacuate and there would be a substantial loss of life. And to me, it's kind of funny. They talk about that number of 1.5 million, and I, I couldn't really fathom how you fill Sacramento with 10 feet of water and the entire Central Valley. And on top of that, a lot of these sources specifically state that even coastal areas like the Bay Area, San Diego, and LA would also experience widespread flooding. Um, how only one and a half million people would need to be evacuated in that case, especially if this Whittier Dam would threaten one million people alone. One really interesting thing to note here is that this model is not based on the worst case scenario. The entire model and what they projected is based off of a storm similar in size to the 1862 storm, which again, to reiterate, was not even in the top half of the most intense of the last 10 storms that are on record. You know, it rained for 43 days straight in 1862. So we're talking about the potential for multiple months of rain nonstop at just this crazy intensity. If you look at California. It's kind of interesting if you pull up a map and look at Google Images or a satellite image or whatever you want to look at. The Central Valley of California is literally a giant bowl in the middle of the state. You have mountains on each side, and in the middle you have all of this incredibly just fertile farmland. And earlier it talked about the 300-mile-long stretch by 20 to 60 miles wide. That's what that bull is. And so, like Kellen described, that atmospheric river comes in as it hits the mountains and rises, the moisture cools, turns into rain and falls. All of that rain is falling in the valley and on those mountains, and then congregates as it falls down the mountains into the valleys below. And that valley, the Central Valley of California, being as fertile of ground as it is, California is the number one agricultural producer in the U.S., and by a lot. They do $47 million in cash receipts from agriculture in California. The next closest state is Iowa at $27 million. So we're talking about nearly double the next highest state in the amount of agriculture that they're producing. 
And so far, you've talked about all the kind of direct impacts to California. But I think about how much global trade goes through California. And then I think about the fact that Silicon Valley is like the tech hub of the world. And the headquarters of all these major tech companies are right there. So I can only imagine the impacts this would have, not just on California, not just on the United States, but on the entire globe. Yeah, you think about right now, people talk about how all of those container ships and and containers in general are stuck in ports in California. And then you consider the impacts of a two-month-long 120... It's basically a hurricane the last two months. It's just crazy. And there's just absolutely no way that that wouldn't have severe economic impacts, not just on California, not just on the wider United States, but globally. California exports 25% of its agriculture. And the $1 trillion estimate for the cost of all of this does not take into account anything outside of California, nor does it take into account things like loss of tourism or loss of like cultural values or anything like that. It's just strictly property value and estimated economic loss based on lost business. Going back to agriculture, though, California produces 13% of all of the food produced in the U.S., and they are the sole producer, meaning they produce like 95% or more of all of the following. So almonds, figs, olives, peaches, artichoke, kiwi, dates, pomegranates, raisins, sweet rice, pistachios, plums, walnuts. So all of these things that would be basically completely gone <laughs> were this to happen. Plus, the state produces a sizable majority of fruits and vegetables. So 97% of plums, 95% of celery. 95% of garlic, 89% of cauliflower, 71% of spinach, and 69% of carrots, and the list goes on. So even though, you know, you might say like 13% of agriculture in the U.S., that's not that much. They're producing a lot of the produce that other states don't. You think of states in the Midwest, like Iowa, for example, the second highest, which is doing a ton of wheat, right? And other types of agriculture where they can't grow the type of stuff that's grown in California. So in a time in the coming decades where food stability is already becoming a major issue because of increasing drought, because of increasing famine and transportation and energy issues, if suddenly you wipe out 13% of the U.S. agriculture production and you know, upwards of 70, 80, 90% of all of a certain type of, of produce, that's going to have major repercussions in the U.S. and globally as well. And then the last thing that I'll mention here is sort of this question about how can the state prepare, right? We had just talked a little bit about the infrastructure and, and how it was built without this type of storm in mind. One source said that most of the infrastructure in California is designed to be able to handle like once in 50 year storms and maybe even once in 100 year storms. But when you get talking about these storms that are once in 200 up to perhaps once in a thousand year storms, there's just absolutely no way that the infrastructure can handle it. So a core policy issue that's been raised is whether or not to pay now to try to mitigate this now that the threat is recognized or pay a ton more later for recovery. And I couldn't find any estimates for how much money they would need to sort of shore up the infrastructure and, and prepare it all. But based on the numbers that we did talk about in that episode last week around military expenses and budget, it's hard to imagine what would surely be hundreds of billions of dollars for one state to improve their infrastructure. Like, how is that money going to come about? And it, it's likely not. 
directly from the USGS website. They say Californian flood protection is not designed for an arc storm-like event. Much has been done to protect the state from future flooding, but the state's flood protection system is not perfect. The existing systems are designed, among other things, to protect major urban areas from fairly rare extreme flooding. The level of protection varies. Some places are protected from flooding that only occurs on average once every 75 years, others on average every 200 years, but the levees are not intended to prevent all flooding, such as the 500-year stream flows that are deemed realistic throughout much of the state in arc storm. So here we're talking about a storm that that it's hard to even imagine we'd be able to recover from. And you had mentioned that as things stand now, there's a greater than 50% chance this will happen in the next 40 years. But if you're like most people, you might think like, okay, well, that's not so bad. We've got 10, 20, 30 years that it's possible this won't happen during that time. Maybe we've got time. I'd encourage you not to get too comfortable because even if we don't have the big storm, the arc storm, these atmospheric river storms are increasing and will likely continue to do so. So there's a climate scientist at the University of Los Angeles. His name is Daniel L. Swain. And with a handful of other authors, you know, did research and analysis and put together an article entitled Increasing Precipitation Volatility in 21st Century California. And one thing I'd like to do here, Corey, if you're up for it, is kind of a game. I know sometimes people like to hear more sophisticated academic language, and some people really like to hear things in simpler terms. So if you're up for it, I've selected a few sentences from this article. I just want to read them one at a time, and then have you repeat back to me how you would phrase that in simpler terms. This is assuming that I'm going to understand the not simple terms. Well, it's not anything too crazy. Let's try it out. Let's give it a shot. Okay, so this is in the conclusion of the article. It says, Collectively, our findings suggest that anthropogenic warming will bring about large increases in the frequency of California hydroclimatic extremes similar or greater in magnitude to those that have historically caused widespread disruption. (laughs) All right, let's give it a shot. So human-caused global warming is going to increase the intensity and frequency of these insane rain events, even exceeding how they've been in the past. Great. You did a good job with your first one. Thanks. Okay. Later says, moreover, we report a substantial increase in the projected risk of extreme precipitation events exceeding any that have occurred over the past century, meaning that such events would be unprecedented in California's modern era of extensive water infrastructure. So basically, the chances are very high that things will be worse than they ever have been in California rain-wise, and to a degree that it's going to affect the infrastructure that's in place. Awesome. You've done really well on the first two. I'll read the last one. This one's a little bit longer, but I feel like what it says is critical to understand. It says, Few of the dams, levees, and canals that currently protect millions living in California's floodplains and facilitate the movement of water from Sierra Nevada watersheds to coastal cities have been tested by a deluge as severe as the extraordinary 1861-1862 storm sequence, a repeat of which would probably lead to considerable loss of life and economic damages approaching a trillion dollars. Our results suggest that such an event is more likely than not to occur at least once between 2018 and 2060, and that multiple occurrences are plausible by 2100 on a business-as-usual emissions trajectory. And these are making my head spin. So it's interesting because it sounds like he's saying that it's unknown how the infrastructure would be able to handle something like an arc storm, but that it seems most likely that the infrastructure would fail miserably. 
it's not set up for something like that, but it's never been tested. But that it's expected that the results of something like an arc storm, similar to that in 1862, is going to cause severe loss of life. And again, he reiterated the numbers that we spoke about earlier as far as economic loss. One of the really interesting things there is is the increase in frequency that he talks about this happening. I read a couple things as well from Swain who you just referenced. He said the likelihood of an 1862-style megaflood goes from extraordinarily rare to just very unusual, and that's a very big problem. We haven't built any of our infrastructure to accommodate an event like the flood of 1861-62, to even though we know it can happen because it already did. He later comments, similar to what you just read, that strikingly, these findings suggest that California's major urban centers, including San Francisco and Los Angeles, are more likely than not to experience at least one such extremely severe storm between 2018 and 2060 on a business-as-usual emissions trajectory. That means multiple $1 trillion floods will probably happen in California in coming decades, unless major upgrades to the state's flood control infrastructure are performed. And there was a model that was ran called the NCAR, which showed that a steadily warmer climate can be expected to make a rare 1 in 200 year arc storm event occur once every 40 or 50 years. And some projections I saw showed that by 2070, we could have even two such events happening. You know, I compare that to the big one that California is and has always been expecting. It, it gets a lot more attention. It's talked about much more. It's prepared for. They have the California shakeout where millions of people engage in sort of a mock trial of of what they would do if it happened. Um, The big one is the large earthquake that's expected in California. And it turns out that the annual probability of occurrence for the big one is actually the same as the arc storm. So California has these two major natural disasters that are more likely than not to happen at some point in the next 20 to 40 years. And there's this great likelihood that both will happen. And now you talk about increasing climate change and how that could result in multiple arc storms happening. And it just seems like, is anyone going to be in California by 2070 or 2080, right? I think about a storm like this that we've talked about. And I think about what do people do? If you have millions of people who have lost their homes, their farms, their livelihoods, all the tourism and everything there that would be lost after a storm like that, what type of migration would that cause? Where are those people going to go? What stresses and strains does that put on other parts of the system? And then I think, what about that happens and then the big one happens? And then what if another arc storm happens? Like, there's just no way that business and people can remain in California. And you think about all the things that California is important for, not only agriculture, but like you talked about, as an economic hub, it's got strategic, you know, coastal importance for supply chains and container ships and and all of that type of thing. It's hard to imagine a U.S. economy functioning without the vibrant California economy. Agreed. And I don't mean this as any disrespect to anyone who chooses to live in California. But Corey, if I ever tell you that I'm planning to move to California, please talk me out of it. Already, when I think of the cost of living there and how impossible it would be to afford a home, and I think of how overcrowded much of California is, and the fact that it seems like it's always on fire, and then you factor in these big risks with arc storm or other atmospheric river storms, earthquakes. You know, I just struggle to see how California will continue to be a viable place to live. And really, if you go far enough down the line, you could say the same thing, I guess, about 
anywhere. <laughs> but it sure does seem like the state of California faces a, a real uphill battle in the coming decades. And the fact that the rest of the nation and even much of the, the global economy relies on California's success, it, it is a definitely a weak point in the system for us all. This is not something that I wish to ever see. It will be devastating to watch as it happens. This is something that they can predict, you know, a few days in advance, which hopefully that means that people will be smart and, and leave in time. Unlike an earthquake, you know, they can, they can see it coming, but there's no stopping it. And I try to imagine a month or two months of turning on the news every day and just seeing the state of California devastated and, and knowing there's nothing that, that can be done to help. So with that, we'll thank you for joining us this week and giving us a listen. Feel free to reach out with any feedback. As always, leave a review if you haven't done so yet, and we'll talk again next week. <laughs>